Hey, hello world. What is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte. And on today's episode, we're talking about pain and personalized medicine. As our ongoing exploration of the full spectrum of human emotions continues here at the Feelings Lab, throughout all of our conversations thus far, a particular point has been consistent and, though it may seem obvious, highlighted no less. It's a simple fact, really. For all our similarities and overlap, no two people experience feelings and emotions the exact same way. And don't get me wrong, we can relate plenty on a bulk of the surface level stuff. That's the whole basis of this podcast. But the infinite nuance that manifests in each of us as we traverse our day-to-day remain wholly unique to ourselves as individuals. But uh, sure, okay, let's say I've gone too far. Maybe we do experience the exact same thing the exact same way. At the very least, you have to grant me that we all have different ways of describing it. Our own language, if you will. Sometimes we lack language entirely and can't explain how we feel at all. Now, if you and I were relating our personal experience experience of, say, eating an ice cream cone. I might talk about the cold hitting my teeth and the crunching sensation from chewing the sprinkles, while you might pick out the satisfying snap of the outer chocolate shell and the smoothness of the vanilla. I I apologize, by the way, a Mr. Softy truck rolled by while I was writing this copy. The point is, we feel different things in different ways. But that's pretty low-stakes stuff. That's just ice cream. Now imagine if you're at the doctor and you are struggling to articulate how your back hurts or something just feels funny. Or if you're one of the millions of women who know full well how they feel but have to navigate an ill-equipped system that either ignores or dismisses them. The ability to describe and communicate the extent to what it is you're feeling, specifically the pain you are experiencing, becomes very, very important. So, how do we detect pain in people that can't describe it? Are our physical pain and mental anguish mutually exclusive, deeply intertwined? Both. Uh, Much like the spectrum of emotions, what about the spectrum of pain, the different kinds and intensities and, and flavors, if you will? Understanding our pain, being able to better track it, communicate it, analyze it, it can only lead to better diagnosis and treatment. In other words, actual relief. Which, if you're someone who has never suffered from chronic pain, mental or physical, uh, one, go buy a lottery ticket because you're incredibly lucky, and two, trust me, relief is a huge deal, and a lot of people have learned to live with the assumption that it just isn't coming. Now, I'm not saying we're going to solve all the world's pain problems today, uh, though that would be pretty sweet. Uh, But there are people out there working incredibly hard to expedite our journey towards a future where people aren't dismissed or misunderstood, but rather each individual can be diagnosed and treated in as specific and effective a way as possible. One such person pushing us forward is on the show today, and I'm thrilled that they're here and made the time to hang out with us. We'll bring them on in just a second. Uh, But first, what I'm feeling right now is the opposite of pain, because my good friend and co-host, Dr. Alan Cowan, is here with me once again. Alan, good to see you, sir. How are you doing, bud? Doing good. No pain today. Um, <laughs> Very good. I explain anyway. <laughs> so far, so good. Very good. Fantastic, Alan. All right. Well, let's keep rolling, my man. Our guest today is director of the Pain Intervention and Digital Research Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and faculty at Harvard Medical School. He completed his medical training and psychiatry residency at Yale University, Pain Medicine Fellowship at the University of Washington, and his graduate work at the University of Texas. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, Time, and Scientific American. And his latest book, 
Reading Our Minds, The Rise of Big Data Psychiatry is available right now wherever books are sold. Please welcome to the show, the great Daniel Barron is here. Dr. Daniel Barron, thank you so much for being with us. My goodness, how are you doing, sir? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful oh. welcome. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. No, thanks so much again. We're, we're just so excited to have you on the show. Uh, there's a lot uh, I'm excited to get into and dig into today. I loved your book, by the way. Congrats on that. We'll get to that in a little bit, too. Uh, but let's start thank with you. a simple question, guys. Uh, simple question, but I assume a pretty big answer. Why? Why is pain detection so important? So as a pain physician, I'm the person people would go to if they're experiencing pain. And, you know, as you might guess, it's a pretty pretty uh, wide range of things that can cause people pain and also a pretty wide range of the ways people describe their pain. Yeah. So this is a, this brings a real complexity to my work because if someone's coming to me for a treatment of a painful condition, I have to not only be able to define it clearly uh, to communicate about it with the patient, but also I have to define it clearly in order to understand if my treatments are being useful for that patient. And so both in terms of understanding and also in knowing that my treatments are successful, it becomes relevant. For sure. Thank you for that. Alan, uh, what from your perspective, why do you think it's uh, is super important? Man, I mean, there's so many layers to that. You get into the evolutionary explanation of why people recognize each other's pain, why we have expressions for pain, uh, like the sound <laughs> of pain. Uh, no, that's more of an anger one. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, more. What else you got? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, you, you hear it because, and, and hearing it is one thing because, you know, you want to know when somebody else is in pain because there's a threat, right? You probably might want to be running away from it. Maybe you want to run to them to try to save them if it's a baby and you're the mother or you're the father. You want to run to us uh, to help. Um, and so there's so many signals that we have for pain. Uh, and then, you know, if you're a, a, a soccer player and you want to fake an injury, you can exploit that too. I mean, there's just so many ways that we use pain detection from an interpersonal perspective. Um, and then when it comes to sort of medical diagnosis, it's a whole other no level, right? Because you kind of need ob objectivity. Um, but most of the tools we rely on in everyday life to sense each other's pain are not objective, they're yeah. very subjective and uh, very social, communicative. Um, and so there's this, there's this barrier. And at the end of the day, you need to have a firm diagnosis of somebody you probably don't know. I mean, you probably know your patients well, but, um, but not as well as you would, uh, you know, a mother and, and their infant. So you have to, you have to really um, navigate these complexities to be able to make an actionable decision uh, that's going to affect the trajectory of somebody's life. Oh, uh, fantastic. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, actually, could I add something to that? So something Alan said, uh, I, I think the evolutionary origins are fascinating. And then also within an individual, the way that they conceptualize pain themselves can evolve over time and even within their own social group. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the complexities I have to manage is people come from different, I mean, we could just call them socioeconomic backgrounds, each of which has a unique expression of pain, including maybe facial expression, routines that may cause them pain or not. So being able to identify the, the clinical signal, the actionable clinical signal there is, is really complicated. 
Well, that, that reminds me of, and the, everything you guys said in the past two minutes so far is going to, these are the themes and everything we're going to dig into today. So this is very exciting, but uh, going specifically in this direction, you know, Alan, you and Janet sent over this really cool article. I think it was on undark.org about uh, how psychologists are, have theorized that Chinese people experience emotions more physically than oh, yeah. other cultures. And it reminded me of the opening of your book, Daniel, where you talk about how you had to go to China and you had zero knowledge of the language. So all you could do is observe in the waiting room and in doing so more often than not, you could accurately get a, a pretty close assessment uh, uh, of the different patients you observe. I know in the book you were speaking more to the universal language of behavior, but what do we think about to what extent does one's culture have on one's relationship and experience with pain? So this is, this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, my research assistant, uh, Melanie Fu, is is a uh, Chinese in background. Um, and uh, we've talked a lot about the difference in the way people describe pain, like types of words that they may use. And th there's a literature, I haven't read this on Dark article, but there is a literature that describes how in different cultures, people are more likely to describe like back pain in, in different terms, right? Maybe they're uh, more... Uh, like physical terms in the U.S. is much more common, like, oh, there's pain in my back, whereas in other cultures it might uh, take on more of a, um, not really like a supernatural, but um, more of like a psych psychologic uh, connotation mm. or use different terms to describe it. So there's actually a whole literature within the pain field trying to develop questionnaires that can then evaluate patients from different cultures, trying to target similar, like, physiologic concerns, but using different language that may be more uh, identifiable by those people. Wow. Um, which I think is really interesting. That's not yeah. what I was talking about in my <laughs> intro to my book, but no, no, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it is a really interesting thread to, to think about and something that Melanie and I have spent a lot of time uh, rolling over in our minds. But, um, wow. Sorry, I think maybe I, I I lost the thread that you had originally asked me about. No, it's all right. I, I just Keanu Reeves and I went, whoa. As at the end, <laughs> I got lost in the uh, concept of what you were talking about. But Alan, um, any thoughts on there before I keep moving forward? Some stuff yeah. that I want to follow up with. Well, yeah. I mean, whenever you're dealing with language, I think there's so many differences across cultures and sort of how people describe things and the norms with which they describe things. And, you know, what how the language for psychological pain gets really mixed up with the language for physical pain in weird ways. Um, but I think pain expressions, nonverbal expressions, facial expressions and the voice are actually, in our research, some of the expressions that are found to be the most universal across cultures. Interesting. Um, and so when you move away from language, interestingly, there seem to be more commonalities in how pain is expressed. I wonder uh, then where it comes into play. If it's not, if the expression is universal, I, I, I wonder what's happening. Something's happening prior to the point of expression, right? I wonder if it, it influences pain threshold, if it influences how they think of pain. It, it, there's a lot going on there that, that I think would be fun to poke around and dig around inside. Yeah, I mean, the, the meaning of the expressions is recognized to be the same. But yeah. the, the, the value of, you know, appearing strong, appearing weak differs a lot. Um, the value of, um, of associating, you know, kind of having grit with masculinity varies a lot. Although I actually think people overestimate the, the extent to which there's that. Like, I think a lot of, you know, masculine people are more readily more readily express pain than people um, that you would uh, maybe expect not to express uh, to express pain more readily, if that makes sense. Um, and so our expectations are violated often by that assumption. 
Um, but yeah, all these cultural norms influence your likelihood of actually expressing something and the intensity with which you exaggerate it. Probably much more likely to exaggerate pain expressions on a soccer field or football field, depending on culture. Versus, uh, versus <laughs> depending like, on what team. Depending on what team. <laughs> versus you, you don't see, even though you see very serious, yeah, I know exactly. You see very serious injuries in basketball as well. But interestingly, you don't see the players expressing their pain very much. No. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's sport dependencies. So you can see where all the... Well, as, as we're talking about all these different uh, levels of expression, these different types, it begs the question, uh, um, you know, I can't help but think of the emotion maps that that you guys, Alan, and the team at Hume have been doing for our listeners. That are, I mean, I brought this up a million times. It's what Hume does. It's a beautiful thing they've been working on. They plot out graphically in a way that I've never seen uh, prior to these things, the full spectrum of human emotion, right? And where things overlap, how they're all connected and related and so on and so forth. I, I'm curious with all the levels of pain, has anyone made a similar map just yet like that? Uh, you know, like here's eating a spicy pepper, here's faking a soccer injury, here's losing a loved one, you know, here's breaking an arm. Like, does that exist yet? Have we mapped the spectrum of pain or what do we know about the spectrum of pain? So I haven't seen anybody map actual pain experiences to expressions in real life. And, and doing that in the lab obviously would have its complications. Like you can't you can't do that to people. But, <laughs> um, but you Break know, like, yeah. <laughs> Other, uh, maybe the military is doing that. I have no idea. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. They're, they're listening. We'll find out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, hey, if this cuts out, we'll know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If this we makes seem, it to the we audience. seem good, we seem good. <laughs> Um, uh, but but there are amazing spectrums of uh, sort of empathic pain versus experience pain that we're mapping out um, where uh, in the recognition of emotion, um, you can see the differences between empathic pain, which is like kind of a cringe versus um, the experience of pain. And there's massive overlap there, um, but we're yeah. able to distinguish them. And yet they have um, commonalities in expression and neural correlates too, um, where there's like overlapping brain regions that represent both. Like when you see somebody's hand being pierced by something versus when you're feeling like a burn, they actually do that experiment in neuroimaging where they like, uh, have thermal or, or, or like shocks or, or different kinds of, or pinches, uh, to actually look at pain that way. Huh. Um, yeah. Uh, but which, yes, which if I could piggyback on that, I, yeah, I think that's do. a, one of the complexities in the field uh, is experimental pain versus lived pain, yeah. right? So if you're laying in a scanner and, you know, uh, to Alan's point, you know, one of the things they do is they put your thumb in a vice and they squish your thumb or, you know, they might uh, put some cream on you to burn your skin or make it feel like it's burning. Uh, there are even studies where they'll inject something into your, your veins to make you feel very uncomfortable. And so these kind of experimental ways of inducing pain and studying pain in, you know, in the brain are very different, you know, at face value from, you know, the feeling of breaking your femur or, right. you know, having, you know, long-term low back pain. And so it's actually really hard to study experimentally because the way that you elicit pain in a laboratory is very different from the way someone might experience or think about their own pain in the real world. So, yeah, yeah. very complex. It's really difficult. You would think you'd be able to decode pain from brain activity um, since pain is such right. a seemingly like, raw feeling. But no, and you can't really do it very accurately. Um, right. So the best thing we have are these kind of survey scales, which uh, Daniel talks about a lot in his book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's really tough. Yeah, one of the, so, something else that's, that's really interesting is, is there's, um, there's a whole branch of 
uh, uh, neuroscience devoted to nociception, right? The the transduction of painful stimuli, right? So I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, the thumb press, right? So if you reach a certain pressure, you'll have some nociceptive signal that's transduced as a result, or you might have like chemicals that burn you. And so those signals are received in the periphery, go up your spinal cord into your brain. And so those are nociceptive signals, but that doesn't mean that you've perceived or experienced pain yet. And so this is a lot of what I do at the interface of psychiatry and pain medicine, right? So being able to parse out what is nociception, like what are the painful signals perhaps from say osteoarthritis or, you know, arthritis in your knee and something from uh, a more essential process like trauma related or depression related or anxiety related that may be amplifying some signal that's coming from the periphery is another confounder that we have to uh, work with. Something that really can't be understood experimentally and kind of separates out that experimental pain from a lived experience again. Wow. Um, kind of oh, Alan, were you about to say something? Yeah, I, that also reminds me of another way they, that separate is through that experiment where you put your hand under a desk and then they put a fake hand that looks like it's oh, attached right. to you on the desk and then they hit it with a hammer. And there's a feeling there that is kind of like a pain feeling, but not <laughs> that you actually right. feel uh, and you want to kind of flinch. Um, and so the, the, the feeling of pain is actually different things kind of combined together. Um, the central uh, part of it and the nociceptive part, and they have different kind of experiential qualities, I think. Wow. Yeah. Uh, along the same lines. Oh, that, that's a really cool experiment. So um, phantom limb pain, right? So um, this is something uh, that's very well described. And so, you know, for, for whatever reason, if someone has a, you know, an arm or a foot amputated, um, they may still perceive pain in that limb that is no longer there. And so that's obviously they're not receiving nociceptive signals because there's no foot uh, in this case. And so one of the ways that you treat that is through mirror therapy, right? So the opposite of what Alan was just describing, where you show them essentially their same foot, but you split it and make it look like a, a right foot, even though it's their left foot, right? Yeah. And you get them to kind of calm down their central nervous system and their brain, the way that they're processing information from that area I, i've seen this before and it blew my mind they uh, it was a they were uh, an amputee they they only had their left arm and they sat them at a table with a large mirror and they would right. uh flex and unflex their left arm and they it, the mirror i mean the the uh the appearance of having their right arm and it actually alleviated some of what they were it was wild it, right. it, it blew my mind it really did uh and yeah. just I, I have the human brain is immensely really complex. cool <laughs> yes. yeah there, there there are other pain syndromes so complex regional pain syndrome is um it's not exactly uh well it's not at all the same thing as uh, phantom limb syndrome but uh similar treatment right so you yeah. have mirror therapy where you're trying to retrain the way the nervous system is thinking about and processing information from your periphery uh, and in this case they have their right foot um, however, uh, you know, they have significant pain there, whether a result of a, of a nerve damage or, you know, something else happened. And so the central nervous system is just like an overdrive, right? It shouldn't be receiving painful signals to the magnitude that it is. And so this type of mirror therapy has been proven to be pretty helpful for that as well. Wow. Uh, let's, yeah. uh, uh, that's 
it's just incredible. And I apologize to the listener that after everything uh, Helen and Daniel say, I go, wow. But like, <laughs> this stuff is blowing. It's really mind. cool stuff. It's super yeah, it's cool, cool stuff. stuff. Um, let's go back a little bit before we get too far down this particular rabbit hole. Because uh, I'm curious, you know, we, we're talking about uh, culturally how different people experience pain, the different expressions of pain. How do we detect pain, though, in people who can't describe it well? Like, t- talk to me about your, your most challenging patients, Daniel, that come to you and they have trouble articulating what they feel or what it is. How do you, how do you go about cracking that cookie and figuring out what's going on there? So there are different groups that um, may struggle expressing what it is that they're they're sensing. So, mm-hmm. so, and this is this is something I've written about and think a lot about clinically. So, a lot of the clinical interaction depends on the patient's ability to introspect, meaning to to think about what's going on in their life, and then crucially to be able to describe what they're feeling in yeah. words that I can understand, right? Which may be a barrier in and of itself. And so patients who struggle doing that, obviously some children, uh, people with cognitive difficulties, whether at any stage of life, but also at uh, older patients who may be experiencing some cognitive decline um, or even patients in the hospital who may not be conscious, right? And so defining tools that can help us understand what someone is experiencing and mm. giving us actionable information is really where a lot of people's work is heading, including uh, work in our lab. And so I have a grant in right now at the National Institute of Aging um, to try to target older patients, try to develop tools that will help us better measure what we're calling functional status in older patients. And one of the things that we're really interested in doing is capturing uh, face and voice data uh, to be able to identify changes in emotional expression that could be related with pain or with mood. Um, and so it's not, a, it's not an easy problem because it assumes that there's some ground truth also. Um, and if what you're doing is you're trying to uh, interpret someone's expression in terms that they don't have themselves, it, it becomes a, a very complex problem. Yeah, for sure. Um... The, the, you know, I'm reminded for as far as I can recall, uh, the, the biggest advancement I saw was when one day uh, in the doctor's office, I noticed the one to 10 emoji scale on the wall that, that, that I get to point to. Uh, and I, I, every time I see that, I'm like, how have we not moved past this yet? How is this? <laughs> this is the cutting edge. This is what we've got. Right. The only advancement I've seen is the change in style of emojis as the scale remains right. the same. So you guys are actively building towards because I, you know, that's where my, do we have a spectrum of pain chart question comes from is like, I feel like that would help. But of course, as you've said, it's not just having that, but it's how do we overcome that personal biases or account for those rather? And how do we interpret that? And you kind of answered this, but like, what would the ideal tool look like? You know, what, what to you would solve all those problems? What's the thing that you guys are, unless you can't tell me, because then you give away the 11 herbs and spices, but like the stuff that you're working (laughs) towards, what's the perfect tool? How do we, how do we fix for this? I don't have a perfect tool yet. That's why I'm still doing research. Um, you know, obviously, uh, if there were some ground truth, that would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, wh- what would that be? I would suspect it'd be unique to every individual. Mm. And so, you know, the way we experience anything very much depends, you know, not just on our, you know, social context, you know, where we are, you know, in terms of our, you know, our socioeconomic status, our location, but also our individual experience, our history yeah. with pain itself. Um, whether or not we may be experiencing some 
sort of a mood disorder or trauma, you know, all those things get filtered into the way the brain processes information and then outputs that perception of pain. Yeah. So it's a, con- it's a con- I keep saying that word complicated, but it's, it's kind of complicated, is, right? It is yeah. super complicated. <laughs> well, I mean, Alan, you mentioned earlier a little bit, just um, like the, the social, like the masculine expectations of like, uh, you know, that, that they're expected to not reveal pain. This was something that I was thinking about, just thinking of the cultural uh, perception of pain that like, yes, a real man doesn't know real pain. He doesn't express <laughs> pain. He keeps it in and he, and he deals with it quietly. And it's just like that stuff's so crazy to me because like we know every individual has a different pain threshold. Some people's wires are crossed so much they get pleasure from pain. Like there's, there's so much going on up there. And yet still this idea of like strong versus weak uh, persists and it leads to, I would expect under reporting of pain, dangerous neglect, embarrassment, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like a pretty big hurdle. Where how do we get over that? How do we beat that? So yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to underreporting of pain in some contexts, there is the ground truth. Like if it's cardiac related, um, and you know the outcome is this person was having a real cardiac issue. Um and, and, and there's you know, there's some work being done in that area of you know, thinking about how can can we can we from people's descriptions of their pain predict the actual underlying physical condition. Um, and that will, I think, be really helpful in moving forward um, a kind of literature on uh, quantifying pain expressions and yeah. um, normalizing them for each individual or uh, for context. Um, you know, even you know, in the case where it's kind of chronic pain that's not linked to a underlying physical issue that you would treat um, through surgery or whatnot, uh, you know, there, there is still... A kind of ground truth, I think, that you can start to get at, which is um, after administering an intervention, um, is there a reduction in uh, the kinds of things that indicate negative quality of life and pain and an increase in sort of indicators of well-being, um, which I think you would need more data for, right? But yeah. um, but yeah. I think uh, if you have enough of that data, you can start to see if you're over-prescribing medication to certain kinds of people or under prescribing to other kinds of people. And you can actually say for a given patient, what is the likelihood that if you prescribe something, um, they would actually undergo an increase in their quality of life. Um, and those models would be sort of a, a, a way of soft, a, a semi or semi supervised way of, of getting at what pain expressions mean um, uh, hmm. for different people. Interesting. Interesting. Um, one of the things that I'm kind of building towards as we talk about uh, the cultural perceptions of pain and these different things, I wanted to eventually get to and dig into the disparity uh, between men and women and how pa- pain is is treated and discussed there. Because I know for a fact, every single day in silence, women hide their pain. They work through their pain. They feel obligated to ignore their pain. They're told it doesn't exist. But then like Michael Jordan plays game five with the flu 25 years ago and he's a legend and we talk about him until the end of days. It's like women gave birth to humans. <laughs> like, based on that alone, they have to be wired to endure pain in a way that I can't possibly conceive of. But culturally, they are associated with the not tough side of the spectrum. They're dismissed as being dramatic. And, and before I get to the can technology fix it, I guess the first question here is what the hell? Why, why do we do that, do you think, Alan? And, and even in your experience, Daniel, why do you think culturally this is kind of a, a thing that we've landed on, that, that this is the, the default association for, for the female experience? 
I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm really, I really don't know. I, I know there are a lot of people that study gender differences and pain perception. And uh, I think that would be a, a great conversational uh, point to, to roll over with them. Um, I don't, I don't know what the origin of that would be. I do yeah. know it exists and I've seen that in my patients. And so uh, I think more along the line of what Alan was, was saying, uh, what can we do to gather information that can help us better detect what pain expressions exist already or what other factors that may be actionable in terms yes. of treatment, right? So whether a patient's a uh, male, female, whatever culture, like how can we develop models to better understand and treat these patients? And can we demonstrate to ourselves that the treatments that we have available are the right treatments for one and then are also functioning the way that we, meaning the, the clinician and the patient together, hope that they would. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm just going to use the, the complicated word again. It's really complicated. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, complicated. it's hard to do this with your brain, right? I mean, to, to sit down and after a lot of clinical training, uh, it's really hard and it takes a lot of energy and focus to do that on an individual level, much less uh, try to define a model that can operate at scale. Yeah. Right. So I think what Alan was suggesting is some form of decision support, which is kind of the holy grail for, you know, personalized medicine, you know, data driven medicine, you know, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. And it requires a lot of really thoughtful people getting together to understand which features are important. And then also, how do we manage all this data and what sort of outcomes are we interested in, in targeting there? For sure. And yeah, just through my lens hearing Alan talk about that, my thought was this tool would be fantastic to help close that gap and offer a unified experience for every individual exactly across sex, across uh, culture, across whatever. Uh, and, and I mean, like I said, we're not going to solve all the world's problems today, but... What? <laughs> we are but a lowly podcast. So but talking about that lofty goal, how does technology help combat that the, those disparities? How, how does technology help us? And, and you start to touch on a little bit of that, Alan. Uh, uh, you know, is this stuff that it, it really, it, like we've talked about before, how AI helps scale, it helps enhance existing abilities, right? And opens the door to new abilities that we didn't previously have access to. Uh, so in short, you know, how do we see technology uh, closing that gap? I mean, it, it, I think there, we, we've talked a little bit about digital um, sort of medicine, digital therapies. Um, I think that there's also a place in putting digital tools into doctors' hands. Um, and uh, I think giving them quantitative information, and this is a, maybe Daniel can speak more of this because he writes a lot about this in his book, but give, just giving and surfacing quantitative information as context um, could lead to uh, more objective outcomes, I think, in certain ways, where it's like, well, like you've diagnosed it this way uh, for this patient. But um, this is what you think we think you would have said if the patient had done exactly the same things and they were male instead of female or, or something like that, based on the, all the right. statistics that we've done on your decision making so far. Uh, I think those kinds of tools would be really interesting to look into. Mm -hmm. I would love to have those tools. I'm trying to develop some like that in, in our lab here. And the primary reason why I'm personally interested in them is my skills as a clinician wax and wane. Uh, depending on what time of day, whether I'm caffeinated well, you know, whether uh, I slept well the night before. And, you know, I've, 
I had twins or my wife had twins uh, eight months ago yesterday. And wow. so uh, the sleep variability is a significant factor. And, um, and so being able to, to have a way to operationalize what it is that I think is important, not even uh, uh, looking for new information yet, right? Just right now, can I articulate what I think is important? And can I make sure that I have the checks in, uh, in my clinical work to survey those things every time, yeah. right? That that's a huge lift, and in some ways, you know, standardized note taking through electronic medical records is trying to do that. Um, you know, there are certain things that clinicians look for at every visit in order to uh, be able to create a billable account encounter, right? So that's one thing that we, as a discipline, have decided should be checked every time. But then, in every discipline, there are other factors that you're supposed to look for, and so having tools to identify that information, make sure I check that information and also synthesize that information in the correct way at the correct time, I think would be hugely valuable. Um, some people, uh, um, there, there's also something that else that's really interesting is there's such variability in clinical skills because so much of what clinicians do is in our heads. Right. And so, you know, if you've been to two doctors, uh, you might have had very different experiences at those doctors. And a large part of that is uh, even if you use the same words to describe your experience, your blood pressure is the same, you know, quantitative values aside, um, the way that that physician uh, synthesizes information in their brain is largely dependent on their cognitive ability and also a reflection of their clinical training and experience which varies widely clinician to clinician. That speaks to actually another thing that's come up on the show. We've talked about this in the context of other kinds of training, which is the ability to have sort of a digital training where a person uh, powered by some sort of avatar AI technology um, can embody, you know, whatever it is, like the actual situation. So you could have like a, a digital patient who's the same and responds to questions um, and uh, and actually kind of embodies the average uh, responses of somebody who has an actual or some level of pain. And then you could have different physicians talking to that same um, patient and you could feed, you could give feedback and say, actually, you diagnosed this level of pain uh, or you, 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 you prescribed this outcome. Um, and this is what the average doctor did in this situation. <laughs> Um, and I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's exactly what? the same. It's control. Because normally you don't have any kind of level of control. And so there's actually no way right. to do that kind of comparison. Yeah. So that, that is a beautiful idea. I love that idea. Um, so, so right now in medical training, they try to do something like that uh, with standardized patients. Right. So throughout medical school and even I guess in some residency programs, you'll have um, it's essentially a simulation lab, uh, but with actual people where, you know, they have a, like a script that they read through and they've studied and, you know, they have certain information that if I ask that uh, the standardized patient a specific question, they're, they're meant to respond. But there's so much sub subjectivity there. And, you know, having an AI avatar-based tool, yeah, that's, that's a great, I love that idea. Yeah. I, I, would, I would love to have done that during uh, medical training or even now. So Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> it's such a it's just such a fascinating use of the technology. And, and we've seen it, you're right, on a couple of times on this show and on both sides of it too, right? We've seen it used as a training tool uh for 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 doctors and things of that nature. And we've seen it too where individuals 
patients seem to be uh, more open to talking to AI and more open to revealing and uh, truthfully reporting their symptoms. And this kind of comes up. There's a little bit in your book that I loved, uh, uh, Daniel, where you ask, you know, why do pregnant women ask Google and not their doctors questions right. like, is wine safe to drink when I'm pregnant? And your wife's like, dude, so they don't get judged. And it was right. just like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and it's just yep. uh, anytime we see that interaction where, uh, the, where we replace one side of the human element with this um, this avatar side, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah. But there, there is something we've talked about. People are more open, they're more comfortable because they don't expect judgment. And it's perceived as unbiased. But uh, Alan and, and, and Dan, is that inherently true? Like, is, is, is the computer going to be unbiased or is it only as unbiased as we've trained it to be, right? Like, how's that side of it work? Who? I mean, I, this is probably more Alan's domain, I think it's but I, more I decided, Alan. I I decided so. with the latter there. <laughs> yeah. What do, you, what do you think, Alan? Well, the, the bias is sort of, it, it's, it's more identifiable, reproducible. It can be understood. It can be manipulated, right? Like, it depends on what kind of bias you're talking about. But like, uh, it, it, if you're talking about um, a avatar that you, maybe you can manipulate the actual physical features of the avatar completely independent of the psychological features of the avatar. Mm. Um, and, and so you can actually decouple what would ordinarily be in everyday life, um, potentially a bias that exists because of culture, because of, you know, uh, learning and all of that. You can completely decouple those things and you can actually see their effects on the person talking to the avatar. Um, and so it's this kind of mirror for our biases that um, if we're careful and we use good methods, we can actually um, make it an objective mirror uh, and, and, uh, and a replicable one and a measurable one, as opposed to um, having just ingrained biases that we just can't do anything about. Uh, and a lot of that also has to do with how we kind of train the AI. Um, if we train the AI on data that's actually from everyday life, which is not controlled, um, and it's just you know the same data that humans normally respond to, then it will kind of inherit those biases, right? But if we, if we train the AI on data, um, like we're doing, where uh, yeah. you know the same different people are forming the same expressions, um, and the AI has to kind of figure out ways to ignore um, perceptual effects due to like the person's demographic features, for for example, or their physical features, and just attend to the expression. Um, and then we apply that now less biased model to data from everyday life. We can actually create something that that is decoupled from from those ingrained biases a little bit more. Awesome. Yeah. I just, I was thinking about that because um, there was uh, a great last week tonight piece. I don't know if it was a year or so ago, just about how the medical industry uh, is, is kind of biased uh, in favor of men, not just like the providers and things I was mentioning earlier, but like even a lot of the science, most of it's tested and built for men with this, like, I'm sure it'll work for women too attitude. And it's like, you know, I, how do we ensure technology doesn't exacerbate these, but you've answered that right there. It's, it's just, we build the non-biased models. Um, we'll move on just to, Maybe I could piggyback on that. I think it's yeah. also uh, like what Alan was saying, because you can identify where the bias might be in an AI algorithm, mm -hmm. or if they're quantify the amount of bias, then you can change it. And yeah. I think an algorithm is much e easier to change and much more uh, trainable uh, than humans. Uh, I think humans yeah. are uh, very difficult algorithms to train. And you could just look at the history of medicine for an example of how quickly uh, new technologies are adopted. Yeah. And so um, having those decision support tools it makes a lot of sense. Um, one might say it's quite complicated.
<laughs> one might, one might. <laughs> uh, all right, well, quick side note: I, I just that bit in the book I really enjoyed, uh, Daniel, because my wife and I have been together for a while as well, and I've had many similar moments of enlightenment, if you will. Right. Just all to say, first of all, thank you to the patient women in our lives that make us better, but also right. uh, just for our listeners, I want to acknowledge the absence of an actual female voice in this part of the conversation. It's not lost on us as three dudes sitting here talking about how hard it is out there. Uh, our intentions are pure, the ideas are sound, but without that perspective. This conversation is regrettably incomplete, but uh, but that just leaves the door open for another episode and further discussion uh, down the road for sure. Um, you know, you talk about how long it, it takes things to advance in the medical industry, Daniel, and and you open up talking about the example of uh, how like a hundred years ago. You know, it was um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt that like sparked the move to to invest in you know knowledge about heart disease and this whole study an entire town. Let's do it. What, you know, why haven't we seen a similar watershed moment yet with uh, with pain, with with mental health, with all of these things? What what are we just waiting for another president to suffer from the same problems we are, or what's what's holding us up? You know, it, it's it's complicated. i think uh yeah i i think there are a lot of people really trying hard to develop tools that'll be useful and you know the 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 technologies that i described in my book um i'm very optimistic about them but they're very much in the research stages right now and so it's hard enough to describe what um what to do in a clinical sense with relatively simple conditions like uh, hypertension, for example, something which we have been able to parameterize pretty cleanly, even though the parameter changes over time as we gather more information. But, you know, like creating decision models for how to uh, treat hypertension is very, is very hard because individual physiology comes into play, whether or not someone will take a medication comes into play. And so, Considering all of those factors has has proven to be a very <laughs> complex process. Um, I'm optimistic that these technologies will add value, um, mm. but before they're adopted by uh, clinicians or by health systems, I think it does make a lot of sense to really look at the evidence and then see what added value they they might bring. For sure. Thank you for that. Alan, yeah. you, uh, I didn't want to cut you off. It looked like you were about to say something. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if this totally hits at your question, but uh, I think it, it, in general, advances in sort of measurement that rely on AI are slow to emerge in, in medicine, specifically because the field of AI really thrives on open data. Um, and what, 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 ta- what makes clinical data unique is that it's, it's incredibly closed off. <laughs> um, and the people who kind of control the flow of data are sort of at the very top. Um, and it's very difficult for someone at the very bottom to, to kind of climb that tower. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and so I think we need more controlled pipelines that go down from the top and get data into researchers' hands without um, too much uh, kind of activation energy. I think mm-hmm. that, 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 that's going to be a real challenge. Um, but I think that's, it's starting to happen a little bit. Um, yeah. but of course, you, you you have to still control um, the degree to which sensitive information is released. You still have to have a, a process wherein things are conducted inside of a very secure ecosystem. Right. Um, but there needs to be some sort of way that researchers can 
serve themselves data from that ecosystem if, if they have the right credentials. Um, because otherwise, I think that that's the principal barrier to any sort of yeah. AI solutions emerging in this space. What do you think about, um, and I'd love to know, Daniel, how you feel about like the recent news, and I'll get to making this relevant, but with Elon uh, Musk buying Twitter, you know, there is a, without with the risk of pulling something out of context, but there is a, a fascinating part of your book where you say like, literally just 10 tweets can help you better understand a patient because of the the data they're in those tweets, you know, when they tweeted them, you can gauge their mental uh, state from what they tweeted, all those different things, just that little bit of data. And with Elon having bought Twitter, he's not just purchased a platform, he's purchased an incredible amount of data. Uh, are you optimistic that access to that for diagnostic purposes would will improve, you know, uh, for all the people afraid of what this means that he's buying Twitter, is there an opportunity here for him to do something truly great in this position and, and partner in a way with the, with the medical community? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know how to uh, assess that. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't personally know Elon Musk. I wish I did. He seems like a pretty interesting <laughs> fellow, right? Um, I I do know that he's been very successful in the domains that he's touched so far, um, and um, you know. That's I'm a fair optimistic. statement. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I can't read Elon's mind. That. Yeah, that's, that's a valid point. Shame on me for asking that question. Let me reframe it. What would what would be the 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 best outcome? Like for you, like an ideal world. He calls you up. He goes, one, I want to hang out. And two, uh, I, I, I want to do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like, what would be All awesome right. and, and super helpful for, for you and, and, and what you've learned about the potential held within that data for patients? I think so. And, and I don't personally do research on Twitter data. There are a lot of people who have spent a lot, a lot more time than me thinking about it. And sure. I think, you know, Elon would probably want to talk to them first, but uh, what I would be interested in doing is seeing if you could model behavior over time. Mm -hmm. And so actually uh, something that I've been interested in, uh, in, in reading about uh, is there's this beautiful infographic. I can't remember if it was New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but they had a, it was a two-dimensional plot of Elon Musk's tweets uh, since he got on Twitter. It's like a heat map, right? So it had day by time of day across the entire time he's been on Twitter. And I was like, wow, this is a beautiful circadian rhythm for Elon Musk's Twitter behavior. <laughs> and I was like, well, how cool is that? Right. And, and, you know, I, I kind of, as a researcher, I kind of wanted to see if, uh, you know, the content of his tweets uh, changed based on the time of day. Uh, was he more likely to be uh, frustrated or, you know, express, you know, certain sentiments during certain times of day? Uh, were there stressful periods, like when he was going towards the launch of the three, uh, you know, the, uh, what did he call it, uh, uh, a production hell or something like that, like that period of his life, did, did the expression change the, in his tweets? I mean, so there's a really rich data set there, even looking at him as an individual. And, you know, if he buys Twitter and, you know, he wants to hire one of these people who, who do cool research, uh, it seems like a pretty worthwhile investment. And, I'd be happy to discuss it with them over a Lone Star beer. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not, indeed. Alan, uh, we're coming in the home stretch. This is kind of a version of my uh, blue sky question. What do you think would be the best outcome? So many people are so afraid uh, of this whole Elon Spot Twitter thing. But what do you think? Let's, let's be optimistic. What would be a really cool outcome for you guys and the research you're doing over there? 
One thing I think that he suggested that I think is is kind of a good idea is open sourcing the algorithm that's used to surface tweets. And I, I think what what will happen is people will decide it's not not really that controversial <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not an algorithm that says, "Okay, you are a liberal, like you get to post something." It, it definitely doesn't have anything like that in it, but it will definitely assuage concerns. Um, that people have just by making it open source. And I don't think it's a big challenge for Twitter's business model. Um, and the interpretability issue, like I think a lot of researchers will be able to go in and it'll take a long time to understand what the algorithm does because even even I think the company itself doesn't really fully understand the algorithm and interpretability mm-hmm. is a bigger project than building the algorithm. Uh, but independent researchers going in and saying, this is what the algorithm does for this kind of tweet. And this is what the algorithm does for this kind of tweet. And it's probably going to be some things that you would expect that are good. Like, okay, this is an interesting tweet that more people want to see. And then there's other things where it's like, oh, well, like this is how trolls have managed to manipulate this is that they realize Mm -hmm. the algorithm um, will surface things that make people angry in a specific way much more often because people engage with them and so forth. Um, and so I think, and, and people will come up with corrective measures for that. So I think there's a big opportunity there. Um, I don't think that the idea that you can just remove most of the moderation is actually going to come to fruition yeah. because it's going to be quickly obvious why that moderation is in place uh, because, you know, you don't want hate speech. Yeah. You don't want yeah. things that are kind of bullying and harassment and so forth. You really, you really can't have those things. Uh, and, yeah. and that's going to be clear also right off the bat. So I think it'll be, it'll be uh, revelatory for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. For sure. Uh, it pains me to say that I had a bunch of stuff I was hoping to get to, but you guys, this has just been so fascinating and every second of it was was just awesome for me and uh, I think for our listeners as well. Daniel, we're, this just means I'm sorry, but you're going to have to come back because I've got a million questions for you. I've enjoyed having you on here so much. This has been uh, a lot thank of fun. You. Thank you. I'm glad. It's been so much fun having you. You know what this hasn't been? Complicated. No, this is complicated. Been very ah, well, I don't know. The AV signal, you know, kind of coming in. Fair enough. Out. We've had some <laughs> AV complications, but I found it very easy talking to you, man. And I've uh, really appreciated you being Absolutely. here. And, and I can't thank you enough for making time. So thank you again for joining us. It, it means a lot to us here in the show. Um, for everyone out there listening, check out Daniel's book, Reading Our Minds, The Rise of Big Data Psychiatry. I'm telling you guys, it's fascinating. And as I've said many times in this show, and it's very apparent, I am no scientist. Uh, and I thought it had some incredible info and insight in there. It was a really good read. So def check that out. Uh, Alan, always a pleasure. Thank you for making time to host with me. Couldn't do it without you. Uh, and talking about making time, thank you to our listeners. We know you had a lot of choices in your podcast distraction today, and we appreciate you letting us provide the background to your commute, workout, or whatever it is you're doing while listening to this. And hey, if you want to make the jump from listener to participant, shoot us an email at thefeelingslab at hume.ai, T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at hume, H-U-M-E dot A-I. Ask a question, suggest a topic or a guest, or just say hello. That's another choice that I'll leave up to you. I will be back next week with another exciting episode of the Feelings Lab. Farewell for now, my friends. From the Feelings Lab, I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. And please stay safe out there. 